another, I'd like you to listen to a couple of sounds. It was a complete creation of his own making. I was the very, very first in the whole world. I've got plenty of other people. I've got uh, four sisters and two brothers. They've all got plenty of kids. I've got plenty of kids on Jim Picture. So my kids, uh, to me anyway, the best sorts of kids is they all go home to their parents. Me to do things for him. He wanted me to fondle him. He asked me for oral sex. We gave him every instrument that he needed in Brooklyn prey on some extremely damaged individuals. Sir James Savile OBE, the man who has single-handedly raised more than 30 million pounds for charity. Why have you said in interviews that you don't have emotions? Because it's easier. The truth is I'm very good at masking them. I'm a rare breed insofar as I'm a single fella. Uh, and which is why when people say, there are five places you've got to live in. Aren't they expensive? I said, not as expensive as a wife. Now, the Metropolitan Police say that it will now take the lead in investigating sex abuse allegations against the late Sir Jimmy Savile as more women come forward claiming to have been assaulted by the television presenter. Who's your best pal, Tony? Oh, look, No, Desmond. He's not. He is. No, he's not. Get off me. Because he's a married man. Okay. Yes, you do. Oh. Well, no, <laughs> not until you say me. Now, me, when I stand in front of the table and St. Peter's there, he says, you are not coming in. Uh, and I'll say, well, why not? And he'll say, because you're a villain. And, and he'll show me the debit side. And I'll say, hang about. And I'll show him the credit side. And he does that mean anything? And if he says, that means nothing, then I'll threaten to break his fingers. What does she do with the cable, boys? <laughs> and I didn't want to. And he promised me that if I gave him oral sex, that he would arrange for me and my friends to go to Television Central and be on his television show. Hey, hey, hey! We've got it all happening tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody's around. We're going to start with our guests. I hope it's been a very good week for you, and here's a very good set to fix it for you. Here we go now with a letter from Leeds. Yeah, Leeds. Me? So I promise. I promise. That you. Jimmy Savile. <laughs> Jimmy Savile. Are the only one. Are the only one. In my life. I was 14. Of course I wanted to go to television centre. I didn't want to give him more facts. I thought it was disgusting, but I did that. Gary Glitter was one example. He was particularly horrible and only interested in getting as much sex as he could possibly get from any girl. I'd start with manipulative, then controlling, and very, very clever. It has become a great British institution. Not bad for just another zany DJ. But there's a lot more to cigar-smoking Jimmy than meets the eye. I can remember seeing him having sex with one of the girls from Duncroft in Jimmy Sadler's dressing room. I was the very, very first in the whole world to run a dance to record. You used to be a wrestler, didn't you? Right, I need a lamp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm feared in every girls' school in this country. Hello and welcome once again to the Deathcast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our third look at the life and crimes of Sir Jimmy Seville. 
before we get into it this week, I'd like to thank everyone who has given me feedback on this particular series online. As I mentioned last week, I've been fairly overwhelmed by the response that my coverage of Seville has gotten, and I appreciate all of the feedback. We get into it. I have my normal plugs if you'd like to follow either myself or the show on social media. That would be on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram. You can find me, just search for Ian Totten, author, or search for the Death Cast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, just look for Corpse Creek. Hit the follow button. If you'd like to sign up for the show's mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click sign up now. While there, please consider becoming a patron of the show by clicking on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee, help offset the expenses of this show. What many people don't realize about podcasts is it costs money to have your show up on all of these platforms, especially if you do not have any advertisers. If you'd like to check out any of the six novels I have written, you can find them at Amazon. Just search for Ian Totten. My two most popular being The Throwaway Girls of Olympia and my most recent release, Maggie can be found on there. If you're interested in purchasing an autographed copy of any one of my books, just contact me at ian at corpsecreekpublishing.com and let me know what it is you're looking for. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe uh, wherever it is you get your podcasts at and leave a five-star review on Podcast Addict or on Apple Podcasts, it really does help the show come up more in people's searches for true crime, and it's appreciated. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a chair, kick back, relax, close your eyes, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. So before we really dive into what we're going to be covering this week, a couple people have pointed something out to me, and that is that I continuously refer to the things that Seville has done as being alleged. There is a reason for that. Seville was never convicted of any crimes. He died before any of these allegations really came out, and as such was unable to defend himself. It was a situation of where he passed away and then was burned at the stake. That's not to say that I don't believe Seville did some really awful, inappropriate things in his life. However, it's he shit said, she said at this point, because again, he's not here to defend himself. And the majority of the people who are saying these things beyond evidence that they were where they said they were during a given period of time, there's no physical evidence to prove whether or not what took place was consensual or criminal. And when I say consensual, I want it to be understood, that, and I've talked about this in the last two episodes, 
in Britain at that period of time, if you were 15 or 16 years old, that was considered the age of consent. Therefore, that would mean what Seville did, well, morally reprehensible, was technically legal. And again, I do believe he did some really reprehensible and awful things, but as you're going to see when we get into later episodes after I really start talking about his life and start focusing on all these various reports that came out after his death, you've kind of got to sift through everything to find the truth of the matter because there is a lot of bullshit inside of these reports that cannot be verified and actually flies in the face of established facts, not only concerning Jimmy Seville, but concerning individuals like him as a whole. So just keep that in mind when it comes to Seville, that he was never charged with anything, he was never found guilty of anything, and everything that has been said about him is in hindsight with no evidence one way or the other to either prove or disprove the charges levied against him. When we left off last time, Seville's star was really starting to rise. He was a DJ on the DECA radio shows, which aired on Radio Luxembourg. He had gone to the United States and met Elvis Presley, had his picture taken with him and he was beginning his first real forays into television. Seville was extremely popular, so much so that other young DJs kind of flocked to him as a mentor, one of which was a man by the name of Tony Calder. For those of you familiar with the Rolling Stones, Tony Calder was their co-manager. And Seville mentored this guy for about 18 months. Caldor later said that while he was doing the circuit of mecca clubs that Seville was working at and managing in and around London and in Manchester and Leeds, he took an apartment in an area of London that was near Seville's house, or apartment, I should say, and oftentimes when Seville would come in, he would send girls down that were with him, and quote-unquote, you'd have to shag her. So basically, Seville was spreading the wealth, whether this was to make himself seem less guilty by, you know, implicating others in the things that he was getting into, or it was because he was trying to build this wall that I talked about in the last episode, you know, this wall of security around him, you know, you really can't say. It could be a little bit of both. Hey, you can't say that I'm guilty of this because look, this guy over here, I was into it too, and so was this guy, and so was that guy. You know, it's it's like a mashup of the two. I don't think Seville was passing these girls around just because he was a good guy. Calder further went on to talk about how he could see that Seville was building up this wall of protection around him. 
Evans, he stated that this was the only time he ever saw Seville pay for food and drink for other people. And when questioned about it, Seville stated, I'm paying for it because he's the chief of police and he's my friend and I've got to be a friend. Caldor also pointed out that when one chief of police would retire or move on to a different station house, Seville would pretty much lose interest in them and instead focus on their successor. Which makes sense if you were trying to, you know, gain inroads into the halls of power and also trying to build up a wall of protection around yourself. If someone is no longer of use to you, you stop sweetening the honey pot for them and go towards the person who is of use to you. During this period of time, Seville was also invited to come to lead the general infirmary to oversee the launching of their radio station. And when Seville went to the, the hospital, he volunteered as a porter, and this is really the first known of Seville lending his hand really to charity in this manner. Seville would be associated with Leeds General Infirmary from this time in the early 1960s, in 61 or so, up until the day he died. One interesting thing that Calder recounted to Dan Davies about his times with Seville is that he noticed without really noticing it at the time that something was wrong with Seville. He stated that it was almost as though the whatever had taken place down in the mind with him dictated the course of the rest of his life. To quote Calder, we'd be sitting having a meal and something would come over and him and asked him what was wrong. And he'd say, I'll be all be right in a minute. It's hard to explain. I was in the mine and there was an accident. And then he'd change the subject and start chatting up some bird. So at least from this account, you know, if we're going to believe any of the mythos of Jimmy Seville, something must have happened to him in the mine. Again, it's hard to tell because medical records and things of that nature are really non-existent from that period of time. And all we have to go on is Seville's word, the word of those who knew him, as well as his family. And all of them agreed that something did indeed happen, but we can't tell with certainty what it was. But apparently it did affect him greatly. In May of 1962, Jimmy Seville moved on from managing a single dance hall and being involved with various others throughout England when he was promoted. The reason for this promotion was the owner of Mecca uh, realized that Seville, who was, by this point was in high demand all across the United Kingdom for various companies and organizations, was very likely going to dance halls if he was not given the promotion. Basically, Seville was put in charge of the music and DJ policy at all of the ballrooms across the United Kingdom. That's 46 different 
ballrooms that Seville had direct control over. This also freed up Seville, who was working seven days a week at this point between the various dance halls and the Radio Luxembourg appearances and various television shows to pursue other interests of making money. So they'll work at this point for Mecca part-time, which allowed him to devote the remainder of his time to his various exploits running around the country. Some of these exploits were strictly for publicity reasons, while others he did with the money going to various charities. This new promotion also upped how much Seville was making a year, and it was at this point that he bought his first real Rolls Royce. He bought it brand new. Some people say that's not an important fact to throw in there, but Seville and Rolls Royces and Bentleys and cars of that nature, they were re- they're really a part of the self-image that he built for himself over the ensuing decades, along with the, you know, the garish clothing, the hair cut, the coloring to the hair, and the cigars. The cars were a big part of this larger-than-life persona that he very carefully crafted to serve up to the British public. There were some stories flittering around during this period of time concerning Seville and his various exploits with young women, with one young woman from Manchester coming out after his death and stating that he had various girlfriends in and around Manchester, but they all knew about each other, and the reality was he would take them all out for dinner and in his Rolls Royce, and they would have a good time. This fits into what I talked about last episode, which was Seville's teens. During this period of time, he started building these various teens. And what were these teens? These were young men and women who were hangers-on, who would do his bidding in various areas of the country, whether that was helping to promote whatever it was he was doing in that area or helping to secure lodging for him in an area or being his entourage while out in public or in the case of the young women you know being his sexual partners this is really the start of his his teams much like he had teams who in various areas of the country who were politicians and police officers and as time goes on members of the royal family he had his team of people that he made feel important in order to get them to do the things that he wanted them to do for him the Manchester team is notable however because it ties into Jimmy Seville's black pad which I may or may not have mentioned last episode was a apartment he had in Manchester that was all painted black where it is known that he took his various sexual conquests 
and how that ties in is one of these young women who had been involved with Seville teams who stated she was not involved with a sexual relationship with him knew that he quite often brought his various girlfriends back to this pad but from what she could see it did not seem as though he was abusing or manipulating these other women in any way shape or form only that they had what could best be described as a friends with benefits type relationship. Seville was really coming into his own at this period of time, put out at least two singles, which were covers of novelty songs. And he took his, for lack of a better term, stage show, his DJing abilities on tour with a band that he was associated with that stopped at 18 different uh, venues throughout Great Britain. During this period of time, he was mostly driven around by a what could only be described as a chauffeur who was unpaid beyond you know, being given food and allowed to hang out with Jimmy Seville. Seville began staying in what is termed caravans in the United Kingdom, which are really micro-buses with beds in the back or, you know, a stove, that type of thing, almost like a, a conversion van that you can purchase here in the States. He stayed in a lot of these throughout the country. In fact, he ended up owning a number of them that he had situated throughout the country in order that he could move around freely and not have to worry about where he was staying. And people began in, in certain areas to notice that, you know, he was taking a lot of young women back to his caravan at night. Although, again, just as in earlier in his career, nobody said anything. So we've got Seville doing all of this while at the same time he's starting to run you know, marathons and what have you at night in order to, you know, keep up his physical abilities, riding his bike, and doing this, he would have great groups of young people attached to him. So wherever it might be that he was at a given moment, you might see Jimmy Seville and 20 or 30 people running at 2 o'clock in the morning just because those were the hours he kept and he was always deeply into exercise as well as self-promotion and I have to believe that these running jaunts in the middle of the night and riding his bicycle with a group of people around him were, you know, they served two purposes. They helped him get the exercise that he wanted but they also helped to promote this rather strange individual who was quickly becoming a fixture upon the British landscape. To give you some historical context of what's going on at this period of time, on October 15th of 1963, the Beatles officially become the hottest act in Great Britain with the Daily Mail dubbing what is going on with them as Beatlemania. 
you're of a certain age, you've seen the film footage of, you know, the girls chasing them and fainting as they play and wetting their pants over the excitement they're feeling as these four young men take the stage and do their thing. And swirling in amongst all of this somewhere is Jimmy Seville. He's spinning their records on his radio shows. He's running around the country doing his various deeds for Mecca and the dance halls. He's also appearing on TV shows sporadically. And then his old friend, Bill Benny, who is basically the godfather of Manchester, dies from a heart attack while receiving oral sex from a woman. Benny had been out at a wrestling venue where he apparently had a match after which he retired back to an apartment and suffered a heart attack trapping the woman underneath him which I have to imagine was a very hellacious experience for this young woman because Bill Betty was not a small man at all and the reason I bring this up is Seville was a fixture at Benny's funeral. There are pictures out there of him standing next to the coffin with a wreath that he had placed on top of it along with a cigar. But also because it is known that Seville went immediately to Benny's apartment after hearing about his friend's death and gained access. Why Seville went felt the this and what it was that he had done once inside the apartment, we will never know, although I suspect that if the things said about Seville and his connections to the underworld are true, he was more likely than not going into the apartment and removing any evidence that might lead to him having trouble through the police forces. We will continue with our look at Jimmy Seville and his life and crimes in just a moment. For me and Tommy, best-selling author of the House of Silver Dolls, the Blood Gotch Trilogy, and the Throwaway Girls Olympia, comes Maggie. Book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. 
the sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been We are back. Remember that book? It's called Maggie. Go out. You can find it on Amazon, Kindle, ebook, and audiobook through Audible. Interesting thing that actually occurs not long after Bill Benny's death is the fact that Seville gets involved in British pro wrestling. Once again, as I've said on numerous occasions, everything I do eventually comes back to wrestling. According to Seville, Benny is the one who initially convinced him to get involved in professional wrestling in Great Britain. Now, for those of you not aware of the difference between British pro wrestling and American pro wrestling in Britain and in much of Europe, they didn't have contests that were, you know, straight through. They would have contests that were rounds, and it was a much different style than what we are used to here. So Seville gets involved in this, and apparently he had his first match somewhere around the beginning of December 1963. Seville ended up losing the match in seven rounds, although he described it in a newspaper article that he wrote on the 15th of December as, quote-unquote, about the best experience of my life. These wrestling matches, as well as the newspaper columns, were just another part of Seville's life that went on for roughly the next 20 years or so. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I had the pleasure of actually asking the man who had Jimmy Seville's final match, wrestler by the name of Adrian Street, about that final match. Street was on a podcast that a friend of mine at the time was doing, and they were talking to him about his career, and when I asked him about Seville, I I was already well-versed in who Jimmy Seville was at this period of time, having been researching him for about six or seven years. Street basically went on to state that he beat the living crap out of Seville, which is not surprising given that Street was considered a shooter, which in layman's terms means he was a legitimate wrestler who could break bones and or kill you with a move if he felt like it. Street also said if he had known all the things that have come out about Seville since his death 
when the match happened, he would have done a, a lot worse to him. The reason this was the, Seville's last match, though, is that Street legitimately beat the shit out of Seville inside the ring. This was either 1978 or 79. Just something interesting I thought I would throw out there. Seville wrestled at least a few hundred matches over, you know, close to the next 20 years. As well as writing newspaper articles for various newspapers across the country. A couple of papers he had columns in which ran weekly. And this started around 61 or 62 and continued for decades afterwards. And it's through a lot of these articles that Seville wrote that Dan Davies was able to really piece together this unsavory character that has come to be the Jimmy Seville that the world knows now. Because Seville was not shy about discussing his sexcapades in these articles, but Seville, as in much of what did. He played it off in a quasi-innocent, almost humorous fashion, stating things such as, you know, a constable had come to his place stating that there was a girl who had run away from home, and, you know, if Seville saw her, he would have to turn her in, but Seville told this constable that he would turn her in, but only after the girl spent the night with him, and this is exactly what happened, and the next day, the constable had wanted to press charges against him, but was unable to do so because he was Jimmy Seville, and everyone in the police force knew that he was a quote-unquote good bloke, and that nothing untoward had happened with this girl. Seville did a lot of this type of stuff, letting the public know what he was doing, while not letting the public know what he was doing. And it wasn't something that he just started doing in, you know, the 70s or the 80s. This was, he was doing this kind of stuff in the 60s, which is why Davies wrote, when he wrote his book, he titled it In Plain Sight, because that's exactly what Seville was doing. He was in plain sight. He was telling people, hey, I'm having sex with all these young women but people just kind of glossed over the fact of what he was really saying which was at this point he was a 30 year, some odd year old man who was having sex with you know, 16 17 year olds or later in life you know he's a 40 something year old he's a 50 something year old he's a 60 something year old man having sex with these really children who were young enough to be either his children or his grandchildren. All of this is going on in Seville's life and in Britain. The Beatles are hitting, they're become huge. ITV launched a new program that was aimed at teenagers called Ready Steady Go, which was basically like an early iteration of Soul Train, where they would play music and have interviews with various musicians, and the musicians would get up on stage and mime perform their 
you know, hit song of the day for the people watching at home. Because of this, the BBC, which in its own mind was the only real British television station, began to look for a way to counteract this programming. And out of this came what was known as Top of the Pops, which was very similar in vain to what ITV was doing, mixed with Seville's Radio Luxembourg program, the Teen and Twenties Disc Club. As the story goes, there were people within the BBC who were pushing to use Jimmy Seville as the host of this new program, while others within the corporation were reluctant to use him because Seville was seen as quote-unquote a heavy, which is parlance, or somebody with underworld connections. And Dan Davies, in his book, recounts a story by one of the individuals involved with Top of the Pops. When being told that they would not use Seville, this man reportedly replied, quote-unquote, sorry baby, but that man is box office. Now, it could be that individuals within the BBC may have heard stories about Seville, but it could also be that they were leery of using him as well as the entire pop landscape because the Beatles had created something of a moral panic within British society. Despite many stories to the contrary and the surviving members of the group attempting to downplay their association with him, Jimmy Seville and the Beatles crossed paths quite regularly during the 1960s, particularly in the early part of their career. Seville liked to recount stories of being mobbed at their concerts when McCartney recognized him in the back of the venue due to his blonde hair and dedicated a song to him as well as later recounting stories of giving Seville a lift in his car, but McCartney, mind you, this is after Seville died, went on to state that they always felt like there was something off about the man. This is my personal opinion, in case anybody get lit- lit- feels like getting litigious, but that's bullshit that's covering your own ass. My personal opinion is that both of them were reveling in their own successes and quite possibly using each other to further their careers in some way, shape, or form. Granted, the Beatles did not need Seville to further their career at this point, but he was one of the most popular DJs in the country, and he had control of the airwaves. And how did the Beatles get popular by their music being played on the airways, whereas the Beatles were the biggest band in the entire country, and Seville most certainly realized that being associated with them, both publicly and in pictures, would further his career. Speaking about Seville, McCarthy went on to say, quote-unquote, we were all young, so if you're now talking about 17 8-year-old boys with a 15-year-old girl. We all knew that was illegal. We knew it was, and we were like, no. But the closer we were in age, of course, the less it seemed to matter. We knew with under-16s it was illegal, so we didn't do it. McCarthy further went on to really push the idea that 
he and the rest of the guys in the band always made certain that whatever girls they were dealing with were of legal age of consent. Which is very quite possibly true. You have to remember these guys were the largest act in the entire country at this point and could really have their pick of the litter as it were. What I really feel, however, though, is this was more than likely than not damage control because they had been associated with Seville during the early part of their career and later into their career and with all the stories that were being thrown around at the time. He wanted to get out ahead of the pack and make certain that no one tried to associate him and his legacy with the abuse of underage girls. On Wednesday, January 1st, 1964, Jimmy Seville hosted the very first episode of Top of the Pops. This is important uh, for a number of reasons as the show would go on to run for decades after this with a rotating cast of hosts on a weekly basis. But it's also important because a lot of the abuse allegations that came out after Seville's death revolved around Top of the Pops and the BBC itself. When Top of the Pops first came out, the BBC decided that they were not going to tape the show at the new broadcasting house in London, instead deciding on a converted church off of BBC premises because the BBC, rightfully so, did not want what they feared was going to happen when you get a lot of rock stars and a lot of young men and women together to take place at the central hub of their organization. And they were correct to have this fear, as you will see, because by all indications, the Top of the Pop soundstage was awash in every form of debauchery that you can imagine. And it didn't just involve the rock stars or the various presenters for a given week. Other individuals were involved in the shenanigans that were going on there, and some of them were pretty open about the things that they were doing, which were very, very illegal. It is interesting to note about Top of the Pops that all the other presenters were required to do various things, such as wear suits and be presentable, whereas Jimmy Seville was really allowed to wear and say and do whatever it was he wanted to on the show. That is a good indication of not only how bankable the BBC thought the man was, but also on how powerful he was becoming in the entertainment industry, which is really quite remarkable when you consider that just a few years earlier, he was an assistant manager at a dance hall in Leeds. Now he is basically dictating to the largest entertainment group within the United Kingdom, one that is directly tied into the government, how he's going to act, how he's going to dress, what he is going to do. So Top of the Pops debuts, it's almost instantly a national phenomenon on the BBC. 
with all this newfound glory coming his way, a number of major changes come to Jimmy Seville's life. He purchases an apartment in Scarsborough for his mother, whom he had termed the Duchess. This was after Seville had returned home to Leeds and found his mother shivering in her house next to an electric heater and basically starving to death. First, Seville rented her an apartment on the ground floor, but about a week after that, he purchased basically the penthouse apartment on the top floor for her. Seville would visit her at this apartment whenever he was in Scarsborough, but he did go on to state that he had a caravan parked out on the seafront, and that the reason for this caravan was that when he was in Scarsborough, he would stay with his mother, but it basically wouldn't do for her to see him having relations with the various young women that he was invariably bringing home with him at night. So he bought this caravan specifically as a place to take young women to have sex away from the watchful eyes of his mother. And it, really, his mother was another part of the image that Seville cultivated. The Duchess became so entwined with her son and his various endeavors that she even at one point had her own fan club and would regularly be interviewed by newspapers concerning her son with the first interview she ever gave taking place in 1965 when Seville brought her on a trip to London and put her up at a very fine hotel while he himself preferred to stay in a rather shabby place. His mother basically told reporters that everything her son was doing was all an act and that she knew the real Seville and that he was quote-unquote playing to the public. The two of them had a very odd relationship with Seville fawning all over her and dragging his mother from this point onward with him every step of the way. Anything major that happened in his life, his mother was there to witness it. Which in one sense is a sweet thing to do, you know, come from nothing and now suddenly you've made it so you're bringing your mother around with you. In another sense, it is very odd that a 35-year-old man is fawning all over his mother at every chance that he gets, and by his own words, she is the only quote-unquote woman in his life. Well, we know from Seville's own admissions this wasn't true. He had many other women, whether they were of legal age or not, in his life. His mother seems to be the only one in his life who was treated as another person as opposed to an object to be used and tossed aside when he was done with it. Some have stated that Agnes Seville was a overbearing, domineering woman in her son's life, while others have gone on to recount that she was a sweet woman who felt bewildered by her son's antics. 
a psychologist by the name of Anthony Clare, who later interviewed Seville for a radio program he did called In the Psychiatrist's Chair, Rader wrote an article about the hold mothers can have over their sons, and you have to believe he was speaking about Seville specifically when he wrote this, because they had a very contentious interview segment on Claire's program. Claire wrote, quote, that denigrating, rejecting mother can breed in her son a view of women as controlling and castrating that survives into adult life and affects and contaminates his relationships with women. Such a son may spend a lifetime taking revenge or trying to win the approval that eluded him in childhood. Either way, it is the woman in his life who will bear the brunt. And this very well could be the case with Seville. He seems as though he went to great pains to Proved to his mother that he had made it, was making it, and was a somebody. While fawning over, at the same time, the other women who came into his life were treated as little more than parlor tricks to there to amuse him. He would get what he wanted from him before moving on. In any event, at this point, it's 1964-1965, Seville is becoming a major force in Britain. He is a face seen all over the country, a voice seen all over the country. And because of this, his time with the Mega Dance Halls comes to an end. Seville was quick to point out that it wasn't that he was fired from Mecca, but he no longer had use for the organization. At this point, he was making money hand over fist from all his other endeavors, and his time was stretched so thin that he could no longer fit them into what it was he was doing in his life. So something had to go, and he decided that Mecca had to cease to be an entity within his life. But that doesn't mean that Seville stopped DJing. No, in fact, he was put into a club called the Bellevue Complex in Manchester, and this was... Seville had a large stage constructed that would allow him to spin records while twisting and turning to showcase the bands of that evening. And it was from this venue that the BBC began to pull the young women and men who would be showcased on their show as part of the crowd Top of the Pops. And it's been said that Seville was often mobbed when he was at this particular location by the young women. The reason being that they knew he knew their, the men that they wanted to be with, namely the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The Stones were a band that Seville had been promoting through his various avenues for the last few years as he saw something in them. And it's no coincidence that the Stones would often come and appear on top of the Pops or at this particular venue with Seville, almost as though they were repaying the favors he had been doing them throughout the years. 
So now we're in 1964-65, and sex with what has later been termed as groupies is a regular thing. Jimmy Seville is firmly entrenched within the rock and roll pop world of British society at this point with every act imaginable clamoring to be associated with him and I have seen nothing throughout the years that has dissuaded me of this opinion. It wasn't Seville who went out seeking these groups for self-publicity. It was these groups that sought him out because well, a group might be famous or quasi-famous being associated with Seville and the various avenues he had of self-promotion, be it his TV shows or his newspaper columns or his radio shows or the one dance that he was still running it was almost guaranteed that a much larger audience would find out who you were and there was a much better chance of you being signed to a record deal and becoming, you know, instantly famous. And with this instant fame came the money, the glitz, the glamour, and sex, which is something that everybody involved in this scene seemed to claim. Seville in one interview talked about how prior to the introduction of the pill there were only certain girls who would do that type of thing with musicians and with himself and they were the type of girls who would do it but didn't want it talked about whereas after the advent of the pill it seemed as though every girl that you encountered was willing to be a participant in whatever the evening's festivities were, and this was something that everybody in this scene took full advantage of. And this is why I said earlier regarding one musician stating, you know, they tried to always make certain that the young women were over 16. Personal opinion, I think that's bullshit. I think that in their case, they had enough women who were of age that they really didn't need to worry about it but the majority of the bands who were involved in this scene really just took whatever was offered to them whether that was of age or not and again you have to remember too this was a different society than 2022 where some people might look at you kind of askance if they see you doing something with somebody who might possibly not be the age that they're claiming to be or who you really shouldn't be involved with they more likely than not would not turn around and cause you issues over it because the mindset was that's quote unquote boys being boys we're going to call it here for this week i hope you've enjoyed our third look into the life and crimes of jimmy seville Next week, we're going to be looking at what came in his life from 1965 onwards. Seville, at this point, is a star, but he still has not reached the peak of his powers. And in fact, he won't reach the peak of those powers for another 
15 years. And even then, you know, he continued to, you know, coalesce power around him. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Again, if you like this show, please leave a five-star review. Visit the website, corpsecreekpublishing.com. Sign up for the mailing list, and if you are so inclined, buy me a cup of coffee. Hit the donation button. Until next time, stay morbid.